0: it would be accomplished what it is, the fruit that you want to bear in our lives as we leave this place. So we give attention to your word right now. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 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 You may be seated this morning. Middle schoolers, you are dismissed. This will be going with Luke up in the youth room. As they are dismissed, we're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study in Luke's gospel. We have gone as far as chapter 14 of Luke. So if you'll turn to chapter 14, third book of the new testament we'll begin reading at verse 1 and travel through verse 14 so luke chapter 14 we'll begin reading if you need a bible there's a few on the front platform for those of you up front john has them in his hand in the back pastor john if you raise your hand and we'll make sure you got god's word in your hand and read it with us luke chapter 14 I love to hear the sound of pages in the Bible turning. You don't hear that sound in a lot of churches. I'll leave it at that. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying... Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent and he took him and healed him and let him go. Verse five tells us, he answered them saying, that is the religious leaders, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. As we travel through Luke's gospel, we have seen that on three different occasions, that a Pharisee would ask Jesus to come uh, and dine with him. And in each case, Jesus accepts that invitation. The first time we saw it was in Luke chapter seven earlier, when Jesus was in the Galilee ministering up there in Capernaum. And we know that a Pharisee, his name's given as Simon, asked Jesus to come uh, and dine with him, be his guest. And there's other religious leaders that were there. They're beginning to watch Jesus. They're beginning to notice his ministry and And all of a sudden, as they're having dinner, in the middle of that dinner, this woman, her name's not given, uh, only known as a notorious sinner, would interrupt the dinner and come to Jesus and fall at his feet and begin to wash his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. She has anointing oil. And as she's doing that, this devotion and worship to Jesus, weeping, all of a sudden, as we know that Simon's thinking, in his thoughts, he didn't say, he says, if this man only knew, you know, what kind of woman is touching him. And and Jesus said, Simon, I got something to say to you. Now keep in mind that hospitality in this culture is very, very important. That hospitality is uh, of extreme uh, consideration and importance in the culture at any level. And so Jesus, turning to Simon, and said, Listen, you've been a rude host. When I came to your house, you did not greet me with a kiss. You did not anoint my head with oil. You did not wash my feet or provide for that. And as he turned back to that woman who's there weeping, giving her heart to Jesus, he would say to her, The one who's forgiven much loves much. And he would look into her eyes and say that your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so that touching story is given to us in Luke chapter seven. The second time we saw not long ago in chapter 11 when one of the Pharisees as well as other Pharisees that were with him and scribes, lawyers uh, at dinner, they would marvel that Jesus didn't go through the washing ritual. And we saw that Jesus would indict the Pharisees and the scribes on their hypocrisy, on their greed, on their wickedness. Matter of fact, he gave a series of six woes. And now here in chapter 14, we see that once again, a ruler of the Pharisee, that's interesting that Dr. Luke writes that. You see, in Israel, Pharisees, of course, were one of the major sects of religious leaders. It is believed by scholarship, there's about 6,000 Pharisees in the land at this time. And they would be the ones that were called Pharisees, which means dedicated ones. We're the separated ones. That we're going to keep the most minute details of what the lawyers, the scribes, had interpreted the law to be. And they had all kinds of rules and regulations, as you know. We've talked about this before. But here's a ruler of the Pharisee, which means that he was probably a member of the Sanhedrin council. Now, some of you know who the Sanhedrin Council were, um, the Jewish Supreme Court. They were made up of Sadducees and Pharisees, the two main religious sects of the land, 70 members. They were presided over by the high priest. And what we're going to see is we will talk about them more when we get towards the crucifixion of Jesus. They're the ones that have Jesus arrested. He goes on a series of trials. He would stand before the Sanhedrin council. They condemned him to death, and then they beat him. And it was at that point they would hand Jesus over to Pontius Pilate. So here is one. He's a ruler of the Pharisee. He is one that's probably a member of that Jewish Supreme Court. And no doubt the other religious leaders that are with him, we know that for sure because verse one tells us that they watched him closely. It is on the Sabbath and we know the drill that whenever they would watch Jesus, that there would be a confrontation. Jesus would end up rebuking and addressing their religiousness. And Jesus here, he knows what they're up to. He knows that they're trying to trap him, that have a reason to accuse him. And at this meal, we're going to see that he's going to address the Pharisees, the scribes that are watching him, as we read in verses 1 through 6. Then he's going to talk to the guests that are with him, verses 7 through 11. And then thirdly, we will see that he's going to address the hosts that invited him, verses 12 through 14. Jesus has something to say. He has truth to give to every one of these individuals, to every one of these people. He has something to say to each one of us that are here this morning as we gather. People will say, I wanna hear from God. I wanna seek God. I, I want to know what God says. And the question is, are you listening? Are you here this morning? Am I here? As we read the words of Jesus, because he desires to teach us truth, and he's going to speak past our you know, position. He's going to speak past our opinions. He's going to speak past our preconceived ideas. Are we really willing to listen to him and receive what he has to say to us? Because he has some very important things to say to every single person that has come into this place this morning. And as he accepts this invitation, keep in mind, you might be thinking, why would Jesus, only a couple months away from the cross here, accept the invitation of the ruler of the synagogue and his other religious buddies that are watching Jesus closely? Jesus is not caught off guard by this. And, and they're setting a trap for him. Why would he accept that invitation, knowing that this ruler of the synagogue very well could be a part of the Sanhedrin that's gonna have him arrested here in just a couple months? Keep in mind that Jesus loved the Pharisees and he's desiring to minister past their religiousness and their rituals and all of this. And we know that he desires for them to come to him and to know truth. And some of the Pharisees would end up getting saved you know, as we know, after his resurrection, we, we see that in the book of Acts. So he knows their hearts. He's trying to reach them. He's trying to give them truth. And the Pharisees, and uh, again here that invited him, also invite this man with dropsy to dinner, verse 2 tells us. And Dr. Luke writes, not only about his disease, but that this man is before him. In other words, what Luke is telling us that this man with this painful disease, a very bad disease where your organs would begin to fill with, with fluids, your liver, your kidneys, your, your heart, and and you'd be all swollen up. It was very painful The Pharisees didn't care about him. They placed him before him, which means they put him right in front of Jesus so Jesus could not avoid this man. He had to notice this man with this disease. And as they watched him closely, keep in mind that they don't care about this man, the religious leaders. They're just using him as a pawn. They didn't care about the people. They ruled over the people with a heavy hand. They put heavy burdens on the people as we saw Jesus indicted them in chapter 11. They only cared about their appearance before men, having the best seats in the synagogues and, and seemed to be so religious to the people. So they were a burden actually to the people. They didn't bring compassion. They didn't you know, bring God's mercy or God's word or God's heart to the people at all. We saw in chapter six of Luke, that man in the synagogue there in Capernaum, that they did the same thing. The religious leaders, as they are in the front, in the best seats, uh, Jesus comes into that synagogue on a Sabbath day, and he notices a man that's in the back with a withered hand. And it says in verse seven of the chapter that they watched him closely. They watched him to see if he would heal at that time on the Sabbath day. And Jesus was angry in his heart at them. It was a righteous anger because again, they didn't care for the people. They were a burden to the people. And, And so we see that Jesus would tell that man to stand up, stretch forth your hand. And he did. And he brought healing to him. So Jesus knows what's going on here. He knows their hearts. He's trying to minister past all of those things to, to help them realize their hypocrisy and religiousness and, and all the rules and regulations was not the heart of God. And we see here that Jesus, in verse 3, let's read it again, answering, spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath When you read the Gospels, you see that the Pharisees would accuse Jesus of violating their Sabbath traditions at least seven times or on different occasions. We saw it in Luke chapter 4. He cast out a demon out of somebody on the Sabbath. Also in that chapter, he would heal Peter's mother-in-law as they were coming back from the synagogue. They would accuse him of breaking the Sabbath and the disciples when they're plucking heads of grain in the field, Luke chapter 5. And then again, Luke chapter six, I just made reference. He healed that man in a synagogue on the Sabbath there in Capernaum, uh, the man with the withered hand. And then in John's gospel, chapter five, there was a man at the pool of Bethesda that could not walk. He was in that condition for 38 years. And Jesus goes up to him and says, do you want to be made well? He says, I have no man to help me. Jesus said, pick up your bed and walk. And a man immediately got up, he picked up his mat, he's walking, and the religious leaders uh, confront him and say, who told you you could do that? Who told you you can carry your mat on the Sabbath day? Who, who did this? And then we see in John chapter 9 that the man who was born blind, that Jesus put mud in his eyes and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent, and the man went and washed and he came up seeing Again, the religious leaders were incensed. They were upset just as the ruler of the synagogue in Luke chapter 12 that we saw just a couple weeks ago that Jesus brought healing to that woman that was bent over, had that spirit of affirmity for 18 years. Here's a man who's born blind. Here's a man that couldn't walk for 38 years. Here's a woman of faith that had a spirit of affirmity in bondage for 18 years. And the religious leaders were incensed and had indignation, which means they were angry. They, They were full of wrath because Jesus brought healing to them on a Sabbath day, and it didn't make sense. Jesus would say to that ruler of the synagogue, you might recall a couple weeks ago, that you're a hypocrite. Which one of you that you'd lose an animal on a Sabbath day to to get a drink of water? Shouldn't this woman who's been in bondage for 18 years be loose from her infirmity? And as the people saw the hypocrisy of the ruler exposed, they rejoiced at the great things that were done by him. They they were marveling at his compassion and grace so jesus here as we continue they they put this man who's suffering from this very painful disease in front of jesus he had great need and they knew that when jesus saw him that he would have compassion towards him and perhaps heal him And Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes, that is, and said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You see, the law, and it's important for us to underline that word or notice it, lawful. Is it lawful? Not according to your tradition, but is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Because the law had declared, as we know, that there is to be no work on the Sabbath, and they considered healing that that was a work. And the scribes uh, that interpreted the scriptures, again, the lawyers and many scholarship believe that a lot of the scribes would end up joining the sect of the Pharisees. They had said that, hey, healing on a Sabbath is work, and there is to be no work on the Sabbath day. But the law had not prohibited showing grace, uh, grace and mercy that is God's mercy on the Sabbath, did not prohibit healing on the Sabbath. It was all according to their traditions and all the rules and regulations that they had interpreted. Hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And in doing that, Jesus is saying this, according to the law, is it according to the word of God, not your traditions but according to the word of God, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Listen, that's a good principle for us here. Because there may be somebody that comes along and they want to put their traditions and their rules and regulations on you. There are those who are legalistic. they come along and say, well, you can only have certain... Hair length or wear certain clothes, or you know, all these rules and regulations. And it's okay for you to ask, Is it lawful? Show me in the Word of God. If you can show me chapter and verse, show me from the Word of God, then I want to keep God's commandments. But other than that, it's traditions and your interpretations and your legalism that you're trying to put on others. And we see that Jesus said, Is it lawful? hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they kept silent, verse four, as we read. And Jesus took him and healed him and let him go. When it says that they kept silent, that they kept silent concerning the law, they didn't even whisper here. All their traditions and rules and regulations and arrogance, they had made the word of God of no effect. And Jesus, in his compassion and love, would bring healing to this man. And he sent this man home. Why did he send him home? I believe he sent him home because he didn't want that man to be around this hypocrisy and, and burdens that the religious leaders were putting on the people anymore. He said, you go home so you can worship the Lord, so you can give thanks to the Lord, so you can praise the Lord for the marvelous work you know, that has been done in bringing healing to you. You don't need to be around this religious stuff. And then he would, after he sent them home, turn back to the religious leaders, as we read in verse 5, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him. We see that once again regarding these things. You have your rules that you can show mercy and compassion and give help to an animal, to your donkey or ox? That you can give water to him on a Sabbath day if he's thirsty or pull him out of the pit at this time immediately on a Sabbath day, but not help somebody who has need. This man was going to die. There was no treatment for him at this time. He was going to die of his disease and Jesus heals him and all the fluids that had built up in his organs, his face, his legs, his ankles, all the pain had disappeared and Jesus sends him home and they couldn't answer him. Their hypocrisy being exposed once again. Listen, do you know when people will respond to us or we can be most effective in ministering to them? It's not when we come with all of our religiousness and all of our rules and regulations, but it's when we come with compassion and we come with love and mercy. Oh, all in truth, of course it is. But we come because we care about people. And I've talked to so many people and I know you talk talked to them as well that they think or have the mindset and they wonder, does God even care about me? Does God want to work in my life? Does he know what it is that I'm going through? Can he free me from this bondage that I'm in? And we get to tell people how much he does care for them and that he is their hope and bring encouragement. And sometimes that means reproof, to point them to a loving father that sees them and desires for them to turn to him, to say that he sent his son to die on a cross for you, to give you eternal life to have right relationship with the Father, to be forgiven. Jesus went to the cross because of his love for you. He rose from the grave. He proved who he was. The tomb is empty. He wants to give you eternal life and a new life, and he desires to bless you and tell you how to live. So you're not deceived, you're not walking in darkness. You don't have to be in bondage to sin. He wants to free you and it's a loving father that says don't follow that road of carnality and sin because it will hurt you. We get to tell people that the father loves them so much that he has truth for them. And we get to give that truth because we care for others. And we love others enough to give them the truth. And we have compassion for others. So you have these Pharisees who are watching him, and now in verses 7 through 11, the people that are there at this dinner as we read, so he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not set down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin to shame uh, to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. In verse 11, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now Jesus turns to the people who are invited in what we read in verse 7 and it tells us that Jesus noticed how they chose the best places. We're going to sit at this place. We're going to sit up front. We're going to get the best places and all of this. And it still happens today, doesn't it? And wherever we go, we want to sit in the best places. If you go to a restaurant, you know, do you want a booth? Do you want a, a table? And, and, you know, that can be a big deal with people. I want a table. I want a booth. I don't care as long as they give me food. I don't care where I sit. Or it can be at a function. It can be at a number of things. It can even be at church where this takes place. So here Jesus notices this, and he begins to tell them a parable. Now keep in mind that para means to come alongside. Uh, para. You recall that in the upper room that Jesus told the disciples, I'm going to go away, and where I go you cannot come. But I'm going to not leave you as orphans. I'm going to send another, the Helper, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the Paracletus, to come alongside of you. So to remind you that a parable is to tell a story alongside of a truth, a story that comes alongside of a spiritual truth. And Jesus in the parable speaks of a wedding feast. He knows the guests are all trying to get the best places, kind of jockeying for position to set up front, trying to set up front so they would be noticed, uh, recognition. Uh, People look at them and say, they're sitting at an important position. Uh, It was like that 2,000 years ago, just as it is today. And maybe you've been at a function, maybe a gathering where, you know, it it seems like the the certain place for those of prominence. and, And I know that's our world today. Or even in the church, it can be that way. Maybe you've been at a church service where they got the big chairs up front, and the elders sit up front, and you know uh, the the people of prominence up front or whatever. I remember that when I first got saved, I thought, well, I got to start going to church. Yeah, I wonder where I'm going to go to church. And I went to a church that was a big church. I thought everybody went to this church. And uh, I went in the parking lot. And, and I remember it threw me kind of for a loop because right there in the front, there was a sign, reserved for senior pastor, reserved for senior pastor's wife, reserved for assistant pastor, assistant pastor's wife. And all down the row is all these places that were reserved. Now, I was thinking, hmm, You know, for us, I tell the staff, let's park out on the street because we got parking problems here. Let the people, you know, be able to park and have those spaces available. And we want to be able to serve in that way. So that can happen even in uh, our society. It happens even in some, you know, churches and things like that. And here Jesus sees this taking place at this dinner. He tells this parable of a wedding feast. And he says, don't sit down in the best place with the implication that you want to be recognized or positioned or you want to be seen as having status and being important, uh, you may end up embarrassing yourself at the wedding. And the one who puts himself in that place of honor, trying to sit at or get as close to the front head table, you may get embarrassed when you are told that you need to move to the back. This place is not for you. When the host comes with somebody else and says, You need to move, go sit in the back, and they put that place of honor to somebody else. You don't want that to happen, do you? You're going to be put to shame. You're going to be embarrassed. You're going to be humiliated before everyone else. You know, none of us would want that to happen. We read in Proverbs chapter 25 on Wednesday night, as we're going through Proverbs, in verses 6 and 7, you might jot it down in your notes, that do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king, do not stand in the place of the great, for it is better that he say to you, come up here, uh, than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. So this is really radically different than what the world tells us. The world tells us, listen, if you want to get ahead, you need to, you want to get noticed, if you want to be successful, then you need to exalt yourself. You need to strive for that position, for that recognition, for that fame. And I know that pressure can be put on us in different degrees and different ways. If you're going to climb the ladder at work, you got to be noticed you you got to try to you know strive for that position you got to exalt yourself in some way promote a business if you want to get into that school we got resumes and all that i know that's part of the world in which we live in but keep in mind that jesus here is talking about being a person that is more concerned about self promotion and being in the best position You see, as soon as the doors would open up to the wedding feast, the people would rush in and try to get to the head of the table so that they would be noticed and seem important in the eyes of others. And our Lord here is saying to us, rather than being concerned about sitting in the best place, be concerned about being the best person. Rather than, you know, being so concerned about being prominent before man, be more concerned about pleasing before God and how you live your life and your heart before him. And here we see a truth that is given that what pleases God is humility. It is something that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. It doesn't say if Jesus was here at this dinner. You have to assume that they were there, but we don't know for sure. And here he's watching all this go on. And it was earlier, even up in the Galilee, that the disciples were arguing who's the greatest in the kingdom, and Jesus took a child, and I like that. He, he takes a child, he sets that child in front of him, and he says, whoever receives you know, a child in my name uh, is going to be great, whoever serves one of them. If you come to me, you must humble yourself in childlike faith. So he uses that illustration, using a child uh, to be great in the kingdom. And when you think about that, it, it, what Jesus is saying, you receive that child because, you know, Pastors are, you know, like to once in a while when they get together, they're like, kind of like drop names, so-and-so comes to my church. Or this important person. Or, you know, this person that has recognition and all of this, sometimes that gets played a little bit. But if I was to say, little Billy comes to our church, what do you mean little Billy comes to your church? You know, the little four-year-old has a runny nose, shoes on the wrong feet. That, he's not gonna bring you recognition. You're not going to impress anybody with that, but it impresses God as you minister to little Billy or whoever it might be. These disciples are going to have to continue to learn even up until the night that Jesus is arrested. They are arguing about Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? James and John, their mother comes to Jesus and says, "Uh, when you come into the kingdom, can my son sit on your left and on your right, be number one and two in the kingdom? Jesus said, you don't know what you ask. And it was on that night that Jesus, as he's been teaching them, that if you want to be great in the kingdom, you don't rule over others. But what you do is you're the servant of all. And you come in humility And you serve in humility. And what Jesus would do is that he would gird himself with the towel and he would wash the feet of the disciples. This has taken place a couple hours before he would go to the cross. And he said, I've done this as an example for you. If you want to be great, it means that we're to be the servant of all, to humble ourselves. It means washing feet. And Jesus never told us to do something that he wasn't willing to do. And we see in the book of Philippians, many of you, you know, the verse Philippians, as Paul is talking about, giving us the definition of what humility is. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now that's not the world. Let each of you look out not only for your own interest, but for the interests of others. And then Paul goes on to give the ultimate example in Christ Jesus. He says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Let this mind be in you which is in Christ. You humble yourself, become obedient. Be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter would write later on towards the end of his life in 1 Peter chapter five, be clothed with humility. And I wonder as Peter wrote that, that word clothed means to be wrapped with humility. If he wasn't thinking back to what took place in the upper room, as Jesus wrapped himself with that towel. And Peter goes on to write, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Again, let's keep this in proper perspective. When Jesus tells them and he tells us to take the lowest place, it is not a formula or a gimmick that will bring promotion you know, to you. And there's a big, bigger picture here for us. This is not an automatic formula. I'll be exalted. This life and the success that you may obtain in this life, always keep in mind that it is Temporary. And God created you and me, not for this world, but for eternity. Not to have a priority of getting recognition and fame in this world, but to be humbled and serve in the kingdom of God. And the way the kingdom is to humble ourselves and recognize our need for the one who humbled himself and went to the cross and died for our sins. And he rose again and his name is exalted above all other names. That whoever does humble themselves and come to him and believes in him and calls out to him. You have an invitation to the wedding feast. The wedding feast of the Lamb. And we don't have to try to get there early so we can get the best seat. Because any seat at that feast is the best seat. Amen? It is. And we can trust our host. Who wants to honor us. Do you know that? As Jude says, that little epistle in the back of your Bible, right before the book of Revelation, that he is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. That's one of my favorite verses. I marvel at that, that Jesus, that he is able to keep you and I from stumbling and to present us faultless. I think, faultless? Me? I look in the mirror and I think, I got such a long ways to go but because of my position in Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ and clothed with his righteousness, that one day you who are in Christ and I who am in Christ believe in him, that we're going to be ushered to the greatest place, position that you can ever be ushered to. That's to the throne room of God. And you're going to be introduced to the Father. You're going to be introduced You're going to be presented to him faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. In other words, the father and the son are going to rejoice over you and over me. That's our future. But we need to humble ourselves right now and recognize our need to come to Jesus for salvation. And that day is going to be so much more glorious in eternity after that than any recognition of man in this life that will end up passing away. It's going to be forgotten over time. And not only for eternity, but I believe that as we humble ourselves in this life, that God, if he wants to exalt us in whatever it may be at the workplace or in our business, blessed, or in ministry, he'll do it in his way, his timing, For his purposes and for his will. But you trust in him and look to him. Continue to be humble before him. Joseph was in Egypt and wrongly accused, you know, and thrown in prison for about 12 years. He's there in prison in Egypt. And all of a sudden, as Joseph lived a life after God, even in prison, he was the one who ministered to the prisoners. And we see that, Pharaoh has this dream and they said, hey, there's a, there's a guy down there in the prison can interpret dreams. And so they cleaned him up and he goes from prisoner up to talk to Pharaoh. And he says, Pharaoh, I can't interpret dreams. God can do it. He interpreted the dream and all of a sudden he becomes prime minister. He's exalted. We see Moses who was herding sheep, his father-in-law sheep for 40 years on the backside of the desert. And all of a sudden The Lord says, Moses, now I want you to be the shepherd of my people. You're going to free the people of Israel from Egypt. We know that Samuel, when he came to the house of Jesse there in Bethlehem to anoint the new king of Israel, that Eliab, the oldest, was there. And Samuel thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Look how handsome he is, how tall he is. And the Lord said, listen, don't look at the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. And he went through all the sons of Jesse. And Samuel said, do you have any more sons? Well, there's David. He's the youngest out with the sheep. Bring him in here. And they brought David in and Samuel said, that's the one. He's the one that has a heart after God. We see these disciples that have been with Jesus. They're fishermen. They're not in the who's who of the country. The least expected to be the disciples of the Messiah that has come. Because he desires to use the foolish and weak things of the world. He desires to confound the wise and put down the strong. And bring the not the things that are that no man will glory in his presence. He desires to use you and me as we just humble ourselves before him. So Jesus tells of that parable. And then in verses 12 through 14, as we close this morning, he addresses the one who invited him. When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the main, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid paid at the resurrection of the just to the host you've invited all these important people here the pharisees the lawyers people trying to get the best seats he deals with the hypocrisy of the religious leaders he deals with the people trying to promote themselves and now he's dealing with the host's motivation in his hospitality jesus is not telling us that you cannot invite family or friends to dinner But Jesus knew that this host had the wrong motive for having the feast. And what he was doing is that he was buying recognition. Hey, I invited you. I put you up front. Now you have to invite me to your feast and put me in a good place. You need to repay the favor. And Jesus is telling them, listen, the way the kingdom is this, that when you have a dinner, you invite the poor, the lame, the blind. You may not get any credit on earth, but you'll be rewarded in heaven. And when we do something that is not for the primary reason of trying to elevate ourselves, we are given for the sake of giving, not expecting anything in return. Jesus said, oh, you're going to get a return. It's going to be at the resurrection of the just. So what do we take home with us this morning in, as he addresses the host here? Listen, who do we minister to? Who do we give the gospel to? Is it the important person, the cool guy? You know, the one who has a name, one of importance? I'm not saying don't do that because they need Jesus. They're just as lost as anybody else if they don't have Jesus. But I think what we can consider this morning is that what about the one who's ignored? What about the one that no one wants to talk to? That perhaps people look at them and say, man, they're just messed up. And, and we ignore them. In Proverbs chapter 28, we're gonna see that it tells us a poor man who oppresses the poor is like being a, a drive-in rain that leaves no food. You think, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? It has this, that the poor who ignores the poor forgot where he's from. And and as he oppresses the poor, that it's like a driving rain. There's no food to give. It just floods everything out. Listen, don't forget where you came from. I should not forget where I came from. We were all spiritually poor at one time. We were bankrupt. And somebody came along somehow in some way and gave us food. The food of God's word of the gospel. You have food to give. And you give it to the one who's poor in spirit, whether they are not a believer or one who's just really struggling, who needs to be refreshed and nourished with the food of God's truth. We have food to give. And we give it to others. And show the compassion and love that we are to show to others. And that's when we're going to see revival. People are getting saved here. But we're going to really see revival when we remember that we are poor in spirit. And we go to those who are hurting. That the world ignores. You know, get out of my way. I don't want to talk to you. We have the truth and the love of Jesus Christ to give to them. Amen. Don't forget about them. Those who are linked to you in your life that we have the food of the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ for everyone who's poor in spirit, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who needs to hear the truth. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this time in your word and these words given to us, and we can learn so much. And Father, we thank you that we learn about how we can be great in the kingdom, and that should be our priority. Great in the kingdom of God, desiring to to know you, to please you with our lives, to know that as we do that, that there's rewards to be given in heaven. Oh, Lord, we want to be humbled before you, desire to continue to learn of you. And Father, I pray if there's any that are poor in spirit this morning in that they are not a believer, maybe you're here, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. He came and died for you. And he loves you. He does care about you. You might be thinking, does God even care about me? Can I ever give my life, you know, be forgiven? Can I be a child of God? Yes. You just come. You come in faith and recognize that you need to turn to Jesus, confess your sins, and know that he died for your sins and surrender to him. You come in faith. The invitation has been issued You're getting an invitation right now to the wedding feast. And you come in faith recognizing your need for Jesus, that he is your hope, your salvation, your forgiveness. He brings you into right relationship with the Father. It isn't a church. It isn't a pastor. It's Jesus alone. Will you turn to him? He loves you. He died for your sins. He's calling you right now. He's calling you by name to come to him. If that's you, if you're listening on live stream or in a coffee shop or in the sanctuary or listening to the radio later to this message, he's calling you. The invitation is given. Don't pass it up. Because the Bible says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's you. And you can pray where you are. Jesus, I come to you and I give my heart to you. I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I confess that I am a sinner. I believe you died on the cross for me, and you're alive. You rose from the grave because you're speaking to my heart. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you, Jesus, for hearing me and loving me and for the invitation given to me. I come to you and put my faith in you. And I thank you for this new beginning. And I thank you for your love for me. Help me to know you. To walk with you. In Jesus' name. Quickly, if you prayed that prayer, I want to pray for you and encourage you. If you prayed that prayer, will you just put your hand up this morning? Put it back down. God bless you. Anybody else? Out in a coffee shop or maybe on live stream, give me a call this week. You know, call the church. Let us know so we can pray for you and encourage you in any way. Father, there may be some that I don't see that, Lord, they respond to the invitation, but also I pray that we would be ones to give food and mercy and compassion to others, to humble ourselves and not to live life where it's all about us and being seen as important. Oh, some of us may have important positions and responsibilities, but Lord, to always point to you and to be humble before you and to minister your love and compassion to others. So Father, I thank you for this morning, the words you've given to us. I May we take these words that we learned today and go home and and really just pray through it and ask for your help in this. That this week when we go to the workplaces and our family and school, whatever it might be, that we would continue to be a light to others. Father, I do pray as some of us will be heading out to Israel this week, that Lord, that you would bless that trip and keep us safe, that we'd have travel mercies and be blessing the different places where uh, Bible stories record and to be able to see them. And Lord, bring all that back and bless everyone here. So Lord, I just pray that you keep everybody safe here, continue to, to work in what you're doing here at Calvary Chapel. And so Lord, we commit all these things to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.